0: Dr. Mark Dever wrote that what we say about real estate is true in understanding the Bible. The three most important factors are, you heard this about real estate, location, location, and location. He went on to say you understand a text of scripture where it is. You understand it in the context in which it is inspired. And he wrote all that in a chapter on expository preaching. Uh, But in an effort to help us do that, to understand a text of Scripture in its location, where it is in our Bible, we've spent the summer months trying to uh, capture uh, the big ideas and the major developments of our New Testament books. And we want to uh, just get the shape and the contours of the Bible uh, and the particular books of the Bible, not merely to gain information, but to better know the mind of the Lord. As we get to know each particular book and how it develops those themes, we're not just getting to know an outline. We're really getting to know the mind of the Lord Jesus himself. And we want to minister and to our own souls, feed our own souls more effectively as we go back and read and, and certainly to minister the word to others. And we have proceeded to this point through kind of an introduction to the Gospels, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. And so this morning, we've come to Romans and the first of uh, 21 books that are labeled epistles in our Bible. I one time heard a joke, a biblically uneducated man um, thought he was ready uh, to uh, serve as a pastor and presented himself for, you know, candidating to... uh, Uh, to be ordained, and the guy didn't think he was ready for it. So he asked him, one of the first questions is, uh, can you tell me what the epistles are? And he meant to ask him, you know, can you name the epistles? (laughs) And the guy said, those are the uh, wives of the apostles, I think. And uh, well, he wasn't quite ready for ordination. And uh, I'm assuming you would give a better answer than that, but I want to start really basically, since we're at the first of 21 of these, Uh, the word epistle just simply means a letter and it's generally describing a formal letter but dating all the way back to before the time of christ the greeks began to use um, certain of these letters for a broader audience than just you know an individual recipient Um, today we would commonly refer to that kind of letter as an open letter or we might even say like a letter to the editor i mean you're writing to a particular but you're hoping for a broader audience and and because they're addressed to a particular person or audience, there sometimes are personal references. Um, in Paul's uh, letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, there's a number of, of personal references. But in this book of Romans that we have turned to, there are hardly any. There's a few, but beyond just kind of identifying the immediate audience, there's not too many. And, and so some of the epistles read more like a printed sermon than anything else. Um, You can see the few that he gives here. uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Right away he just identifies himself as the author that the Spirit of God used to pen this book. Then verse 7, you can see him again addressing his immediate audience as those that are in Rome. And as he goes on to say, Beloved of God, called to be saints by the activity of God. They're called out of their sin, called into a consecrated relationship with Christ. Um, the next several verses, he, in verse 8, he says what he thanks God for in their exceptional testimony. Verse 9, how he prays for them. Verse 10, he longed to desire and come to visit them. And uh, then you have to skip to the end of the book. I'm not going to have you turn there. But he states he's not going to be able to come and visit now. And uh, he wanted to, but he couldn't. And so what he determined to do was to pen the words of this epistle and to send it with a believer named Phoebe, who was on her way to Rome, and that's how they got it. And so there are those personal remarks. But what comes in between these few remarks here and the end of the book, um, it reads very little like a letter from here on out. It actually reads even more than some of the books that read like a printed sermon. This one is almost like a theological treatise. Um, Especially from the end of chapter 1, all the way through um, chapter 11. And because it is that kind of, of literature, there's a general subject, there's a theme, but then there's actually a thesis, and that gets developed all the way through this book. And I want to introduce that to you this morning. Uh, verses 16 and 17 are going to give us both the general theme and then the specific theses of, of this treatise, if you will. And you'll see, I think, it, 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 this is the hinge from the personal remarks in, into the theme. Notice verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So if you wanted to get you know, a general theme, even a one-word subject, it's in that opening line of verse 16, the gospel or the gospel of Christ. That's the, the general theme. But then there is kind of a, a twofold thesis that's introduced in verse 17 about the gospel. The gospel, that's the general theme, reveals the righteousness of God. That's the first part. And the second part is, that righteousness is received only by faith. So under this general theme of the gospel, there's this thesis that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, and that righteousness is received only by faith. Now it is interesting, I think, to reflect upon the fact that when he's right at the heart of introducing this, he does it in really somewhat of a negative expression, I mean, why does he start in verse 16 by saying he's not ashamed of this gospel that is his theme? I don't know if you wondered about that. I mean, why even introduce the possibility that I'd be ashamed of the very thing I'm about to write on extensively? You know, why not just say something like, I love to preach the gospel. It's the greatest message that's ever been told. I don't know all the reasons, but I think if you just pause and give some some personal thought to those kinds of questions, we can at least come up with some potential answers. And this same Paul, who wrote the next book as well, 1 Corinthians, there he said that the message of the gospel is, to the wise of this world, foolishness. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. That you're you're communicating to somebody that just thinks that simple message about somebody dying on the cross, shedding his blood as the only means of salvation is just nonsense. In addition to that, he's he's talking about uh, to people who are living in Rome, who who are living in the seat of the world empire and all of its power and prestige. And I guess I'm guessing that some point. You've experienced with that emotion of shame, at least battled with it, when, when you knew that proclaiming the gospel would mean you'd be doing it in the face of human wisdom and human power, and you anticipated, you know, even to some degree scoffing, if not, if not much more. I was thinking back to an opportunity I had to witness to a lady sit uh, on a plane seat beside me. She was... Um, a Jewish medical doctor, but she was completely agnostic. Um, to her, um, evolution is the most bedrock fact of our existence. And when I asked her about her own Jewish heritage and what she thought of the Old Testament, and <clears throat> she just felt like you know all of those stories are make believe, written to keep hope alive for an afflicted people. I mean, she knew her own people had been afflicted, but. All this about Moses and Joshua and all of it was just kind of folklore to keep hope alive. Well, I had been uh, witnessing to her for some time and give and take in the conversation. But when it was just between the two of us and, and uh, a college-age son that was sitting on the other side of her, you know, we're relatively quiet. But then the plane stopped. We we're at the gate. People began to collect their things and... Then we're waiting for the door to open. It seemed like it was taking forever. We're in the back of the plane, and now we're standing there. It's pretty quiet and she just picked up on a thread of the conversation earlier, and she said with fairly you know a fair amount of volume so everybody else around us could hear, she said, "I would think that you would be encouraged that people are seeking after God and his forgiveness in their religion." It was almost you know. She was making me just sound ridiculous in front of everybody <clears throat> that I would be down on religion in some way or to think that, you know, all religions don't have some good in them. Well, <clears throat> I now had a larger audience. <laughs> and I kind of suspected that most people around waiting to get off that plane <clears throat> didn't want to hear me declare that we were all sinners to such a degree that we can't do anything to contribute to our salvation. And it has to be found in Christ, outside of us, and in Christ alone. <clears throat> and I'm standing there, you know, I, I'm seriously, at some point I'm thinking, I wish I'd never got started in this conversation, and here I'm put on the spot. And, and thank the Lord, by God's grace, at that time I did proclaim that message. But I'm just illustrating one that really stands out to me where I was tempted to be silent and, and far too often I have been silent with the shame that comes of speaking that message. And you know, in our day it's not just a scoffing world. Unfortunately there are well known, in some cases, evangelical leaders that are encouraging Christians to just recognize, you know, the the gospel in all so called Christian traditions. And to stop being so discriminating and judgmental, and even proselytizing. And against that backdrop, there's a vulnerability to remain silent. And even to know the emotion of shame. And and the very introduction of that possibility right from the beginning reflects an understanding of where the Roman believers might be vulnerable and where you and I today might be vulnerable. And, And Paul's answering why he wasn't ashamed and why none of us should be ashamed of the gospel and i think you can see again there's a continuous progressive unfolding of reasons he's not ashamed of the gospel because as he says in verse 16 it's the power of god unto salvation it's the one thing that delivers anyone who will believe and then he again adds that the gospel is the power of God into salvation for those that believe because in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. And with that statement, as I said earlier, Paul's introduced the thesis of the book. And from here on out, it's righteousness that is going to occupy the center stage in, in this book. The, the details are not important. That is, the numbers aren't important. I'm going to mention them to you just to underscore this but the noun righteousness is found 28 times in this book, but 27 of those are in the first 11 chapters. Um, the verb um, that is often translated to justify is found 15 times, and, and all of those usages are in the first eight chapters. So, so we're looking at 40-plus specific references to righteousness in the first 11 chapters of the book. And again, I'm just saying that that is just underscoring that that all of the argument of this treatise revolves around uh, the concept of righteousness. The foundational sense of that word is conforming to a standard and thus meeting my obligations. So all the way back in Deuteronomy... Uh, Moses called on Israel's merchants to use a righteous scale. And you may have never even thought of something like an inanimate scale to be righteous or unrighteous. But, but he called on them to use a righteous scale when they were weighing out a product to a customer. So if a customer pays you know, five the, the worth of five pounds of grain, then a righteous scale is measuring on the other side five pounds. And that's why when we go to a gas pump today, maybe you're not paying all that much attention to when those pumps are inspected. But you want to know if you're paying for a gallon of gas, you're getting it. Because somebody could adjust those pumps just a little bit and, and customers like us are losing little by little and they are gaining, and that would be an unrighteous scale. Right? In Job, when it gets more personal... A whole chapter of Job, Job chapter 31, he defended his general righteousness on a human level when he said, I have done right to my wife and my children, and I have done right to my servants, and I have done right to the community at large. On, He said, I have met my obligations. That's the idea of righteousness. But when you start talking about a righteousness that saves a man, Which is where we're talking about here in verse number 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. If you want to talk about a righteousness that saves a man's eternal soul. There's several characteristics that stand out in Romans. And the first one is just simply this. It's a righteousness that is of God, not men. Saving righteousness is a righteousness that is of God. It says so, verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. But to make sure we're not reading too much into just a simple prepositional statement, look over at chapter 10, because uh, this is a, a really pointed emphasis on it having to be God's righteousness and not man's because in Romans it's not just like the righteousness of God is contrasted with unrighteousness and wickedness in men but you can contrast the righteousness of God with man's attempts at righteousness look at chapter 10 and verse 3 for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. See, the problem for man, for any man, is not just that he might be, you know, irreligious. The problem for any man is not just that he might be wicked. The problem for any man is not just that I'm a sinner, but that even when I attempt to do religion... It's still my own efforts. And it's still in conflict with God's saving righteousness. The righteousness that is revealed in the gospel is not the product of a man in any respect at all. It's not the product of keeping the law, of following any set of religious rules. Gospel saving righteousness is of God. It is not of man. But now turn to chapter 4. Back to Romans chapter 4. And notice, secondly, that saving righteousness is something that can be deposited into a man's account in terms of his standing with God. Chapter 4, chapter 4 and verse 3. You can see this very terminology. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham, back in Genesis... Chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was what? Okay, it was counted or it was credited unto him for righteousness. If we read through the broader context, we, it would be clear that the righteousness under discussion now is the same saving righteousness referred to back in chapter 1. And what it's saying here is that righteousness was counted. Again, we could say credited to Abraham. So from that point on in the history of Abraham's life, God regarded Abraham as having met all his obligations to him. Even though Abraham was not fully obedient from then on, and even though Abraham could in no way make up for the disobedience or what he would go on to, to demonstrate, God still regarded him and treated him as having met all of his obligations. Saving righteousness is something external. It's outside of man, deposited to his account. It's like when I was a college student, and some of you students know this to this day, and I was facing a debt to the college that no matter how hard I worked in my campus job, I was not going to be able to pay. And then I received a note that someone had sent money to be credited to my account. And quite frankly, I started finding out that a man whose 5th and 6th grade boys I taught in Sunday school started sending $200 a month to my account. My account was paid... And it was not through my own efforts. It was through money I did not have and what did not have the ability to earn. But it was on my account. Saving righteousness operates the same way. It's unearned favor. To use the the scriptural term, it's righteousness that is granted by God to man by grace through unearned favor. So saving righteousness is God's, not man. It can be credited to man's account in terms of his relationship with God. And now I want us to notice thirdly, for whom and when this transaction is made. And you don't need to turn back now to chapter 1. Verse 16 says, The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. Verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And I've had you stay here in, verse, in chapter 4 because as we continue to read, we see what it's like if a man tries to earn standing with God versus just simply trusting God. If you don't want to humble yourself and trust God and his righteousness alone, look at verse 4. Now to him that works is the reward or Again, we would say today, I mean, what, what's the term for what? The reward you get for working. It's your wages, right? Your salary. Now, to him that works is the, is the wage not reckoned of grace, but of debt. That is, if you're not just going to receive God's undeserved favor to you by, by receiving His righteousness by faith, all right? then you're going to be left on your own to pay your own debt to God. So verse 5, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And it wasn't just that way about Abraham. Verse 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. So when a man stops working to earn his standing with God, when he says, I can't <coughs> buy works now or the collective works I could ever do, from now till the day I die, I couldn't earn favor with God. And when he stops trusting in any of those works and trusts in God's righteousness, God credits to that man's account his own righteousness. He makes the transaction. And right at this point, When it comes to understanding that saving righteousness is is received by faith, right at this point, there are people that could, in general, be headed down the right track to get sidetracked. And they do it to their own hurt. Because of this emphasis on, on faith as the means of receiving it, some people have realized that works alone don't save, but they end up thinking that it's the faith itself that saves. That little turn in focus, and I know just saying it could seem pretty insignificant, but that little turn in focus (laughs) leaves a man thinking that saving righteousness is essentially received by faith in faith. Again, you say, do people do that? Are there people today that if you ask them about the nature of their relationship to God, they would actually even say, I mean, some of them will use this word, I'm a person of what? I'm a person of faith. There are people who think that, you know, because they believe in God and uh, because they've espoused what they might even call the Christian faith, that they're a person of faith. They've accepted, you know, whatever they would understand to be the faith, or just even very generally, I'm a person that believes. That it's as if saying, because I believe there's a God, and I believe in the Christian faith, <clears throat> that but that's what makes me right with God. But it is not faith in faith. <clears throat> Sometimes people are hurt because as they start to explore all of this, and think about it, they get really introspective and they start to evaluate whether or not they have faith. Do they have the right you know, quantity of faith? Did I believe enough? And again, it turns to something that is misdirected. And so there's an additional characteristic of this whole saving righteousness that has to be understood and that Romans makes abundantly clear and that is, this, this saving righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that is, the righteousness that must be imputed does not consist in faith, it consists in the person and work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and you can look, if you're still here in chapter 4, you can look back, maybe just across the page, to chapter 3, verse 22. The simple expression, even just given in passing, and many of them are. But notice verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of who? Of Jesus Christ. Go over to chapter 5, though. And again, we're just dropping down because we're trying to get a bird's eye view. Look at chapter 5 and verse 17. For if... By one man's offense, death reigned by one. <clears throat> Who, what one man introduced sin and death into the human race? You're going to say it. Who is it? <clears throat> Adam. For if by Adam's offense, if you will, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. The saving righteousness of God is the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ credited to our account with God. The saving righteousness of God is the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ credited to our account with God. The man Jesus fully met all obligations to God by perfectly obeying both the spirit and the letter of God's law. But then as our substitute, he met our obligation to God by voluntarily submitting to the penalty the law prescribes for sin. He's really, brethren, he's he's sinful man's substitute in both respects. In his suffering and his death, he became our curse and condemnation. In his life, he became our perfection. On the one hand, his death is the climax of his atoning suffering that satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. But on the other hand, that that death is really even the climax of his perfect life of righteousness. That he did the Father's will, even to drinking the, the last drops of that bitter cup. Not my will, but thine be done. And that perfect life is imputed to us. He is all He's in his life and in his death. He's all of our righteousness. And do you know when a sinful man really believes that to be the case and he stops working, stops trusting in human merit, God credits the righteousness of Christ to his account and declares him righteous. And when that happens, a man comes to know experientially a right relationship to God he's never been able to achieve on his own. Any man that ever has tried to be good enough never knows when good enough is good enough. And so his whole life he's lived under the plague of that. And there's celebrated accounts of this in history. Martin Luther is one of those that stands out. He was born into a Roman Catholic home 1483. His life conformed just unquestioningly to the Catholic Church. Uh, he describes attendance at Mass. Um, various services, religious processions, festivals, pilgrimages, relics, all the other expressions of outward Catholic life. They were just all part of his upbringing. He said, as they were, he, he grew up fearing God. There was never a day he didn't believe in the reality of heaven and hell and angels and the devil and demons. After receiving a law degree, uh, a, a master's degree, he started to pursue law school. And uh, he appeared to be on a on course of a very promising career. But one summer day in his 20s, he was walking outside, and actually a bolt of lightning knocked him over, and he thought he might die. And in the terror of death, he called on St. Anne, and he made a vow to become a monk. And he thought that that type of life was the sure way to avoid hell and secure heaven, And he even chose an order of monasticism that was especially rigorous all kinds of fasting and various other disciplines. And he thought somehow he would obtain the salvation of his soul in it, but it didn't work. And he just lived with incredible anguish all the way through his 20s. He was eventually ordained a priest. And he served at the Mass. And the, and the first time he served at the Mass, he actually left before it was over because he was like, how dare I, a sinful man, try to approach myself into a holy God. But he was uh, very gifted, and he was appointed to be a professor at the University of Wittenberg at the age of 30. And in time, he was actually assigned to study and to teach the Book of Romans in his professorship. And here's part of the outcome in his own words. Listen to this. He said, I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God, who is righteous and acts in righteousness, punishes the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered, until I grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy in Christ, he justifies by faith. Thereupon, he says in His, what would be quaint to us today, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn. He's born again. And to have gone through open doors into paradise, The whole of Scripture took on new meaning, and whereby before the righteousness of God filled me with hate, now it became inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became the very gateway into heaven. And dear friend, you might use different words to give your testimony. But I really want to ask each and every one, do you know the glory of, Of this reality. Do you know the glory of what it is to realize (coughs) that the God of heaven, against whom you have sinned, countless, I mean, without number, and every last one, as Romans 5 says, worthy of condemnation? But as you will just come to the place to say, I'm a sinner. And I can't do anything to make up for it. It's to such a degree everything has to be outside of me. And I have to have something given to me. And I recognize that God has given it to me in the perfect, complete obedience of Jesus Christ. And I turn and I trust him and I trust him alone. And he regards me from here on out as righteous in his son. Have you ever just really come to the grips of that? I know what it is to, to watch even some of my children at various ages but one in particular, to know what it was as a very young boy to just tremble with joy and the awesomeness of what it is to be delivered from sin that I could never deliver myself from. And do you know what it is for that just to continue to be the most glorious reality of your life day in and day out? Some, Some here may really know nothing of that because quite frankly, we've never recognized the depth of our sinfulness and the jeopardy that a man stands in before God in that condition. Someone you know, may have languished knowing there's some need, but, but, but thinking that my own efforts are somehow part of the solution. But again, I just never knew when that was enough. My mom was growing up that way as a little girl and thankfully some people invited her to come to church and, and when she started hearing the scripture it started to weigh on her even more. Somehow she wanted to please God but she didn't know what it would be and it just kept weighing more and more and more. But where do I find forgiveness? Where do I find release from the guilt? Until she understood it was in Christ alone. Some here may have have genuinely, as others said, cast the anchor of your soul upon Christ in the past. But there is an accuser of the brother, the devil, and he keeps causing you to look at yourself, to look at your own unworthiness, instead of looking at Christ and his righteousness in your account with God. And some here may not be in the midst of a personal struggle related to this but but you've been ashamed to some degree and you've been quiet or maybe even just started to look lightly on on some degree of compromise of the distinctive message that is the centerpiece of romans i know we've just introduced it this morning but i want to call on all of us again to embrace the righteousness of god in christ And and let the reality that Luther described as inexpressibly sweet and as the motive of greater love, let it capture us again this morning. And I know it's a little out of order the way we would normally do it, but would you just take your hymnals and turn with me to number 44 in our hymnals.